Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And this Texas-Delaware border dispute has got to stop. I know what you're thinking. Texas and Delaware do not share a border. Well, that's true, but Texas is looking to change that. In an act of beneficence, they have decided to share theirs. Texas is making sure that the state of Delaware and Washington, D.C. gets a taste of what Texas has to deal with on its border, as Governor Greg Abbott talked about on Democracy Now! No, I'm kidding. It was Fox News. We decided to bus them to Washington, D.C. If Biden will not come to the border, we're sending the border to Biden and his administration so they can be uh, begin to grapple with the challenges that we're dealing with. But also, uh, we will be looking for other locations like uh, Delaware, Biden's home state, to make sure that uh, people in Delaware are going to see what the people in Texas are having to grapple with. Delaware's like, what do we do? Everyone's from somewhere. Why blame us? All right, two can play at this game, Abbott. We're going to bust down summer traffic to Rehoboth Beach. Get that fresh taste of hell out of your mouth. But as silly as this plan is, because the immigrants being bussed are volunteers, otherwise it would be kidnapping, and at least no one's paying for it who doesn't want to. There's an online fundraiser. They're taking checks and credit cards online. But as silly as this plan is, it's not as destructive as Abbott's last foray into, look at me, conservatism. And that decision was an extra layer of truck inspections at the border. Every commercial truck coming from Mexico's four border states was stopped and inspected in an effort to stop illegal drugs and migrants from being smuggled into Texas. The thing is, all the trucks already were inspected, and so this extra layer of inspection yielded precisely zero illegal immigrants and zero drugs. But according to state records, there were 345 citations for underinflated tires, broken turn signals, and oil leaks. Texas also achieved a quarter of a billion dollars in rotten vegetables as the backups took hours and temperatures neared 100 degrees. And this was a statistic I literally couldn't believe. Texas lost about $4.23 billion from this. The U.S. lost about $9 billion in economic income. I, I thought it was impossible, but I checked the report that was put forward by the Perryman Group of Waco, and it was thorough. It wasn't that $9 billion worth of merchandise was ruined or set on fire. It's that when you take into account the multiplier effects of this slowdown in economic activity, yeah, it, it works out. When store shelves aren't stocked, when parts don't arrive on time, there is a ripple effect that could cost a lot of money. $9 billion in this case. So yeah, Ron DeSantis got all the attention that he wanted from his version of, look at me, conservatism with Disney. And the Abbott opt-in bus caravan is now scratching heads and probably causing the staff of Wilmington's Cafe Brouhaha to sell out of provisions in anticipation. But it really was the $9 billion in superfluous truck inspections that we'll never get back. 
unlike the bus rides, which the voluntary participants described as welcomed, since they were hoping to head north anyway, and they appreciate the lift. None, as quoted in the New York Times, said they were specifically headed to, or even had necessarily heard of Delaware, but they said they were going to places like North Carolina, Louisville, and Portland, Maine. No word on how this might play into Governor Abbott's presidential ambitions, or if he plans to win over, alienate, or simply confuse potential supporters in such places as Delaware, Louisville, North Carolina, and Portland, Maine. On the show today, Disney has really nothing to worry about in terms of tax status, but maybe all corporations are going to need to rethink activism. But first, Donald Trump is being fined $10,000 a day for failing to comply with the New York Attorney General. And, And so what? What does that mean? He'd go to jail. He's in danger of indictment. He'll have to sell some of his shares on Truth Social. It's hard to know. It's hard to ever know what the real legal threats are to Trump and what is just some delicious fodder for a cable news host who would love for the sword of Damocles to be snipped yesterday. So we're joined by Ken White, lawyer and popat to Millions Online. He's here to give a true assessment of what's real and what's wish casting in the case for a case against Donald Trump. On this show, the one topic, a huge topic, an umbrella topic that I'm personally most interested in, that I talk the least about, is, let us call it, the potential prosecutions of the last president. And while I'm personally compelled by it, I find it hard to bring to you, the audience, the most relevant information. I don't always know what it is. There seems to be a dominant strain of coverage that's wish-casting or cheerleading for his prosecution, and another strain of coverage that gets so far deep in the weeds, I get flashbacks from having to try to remember which one was Oleg Derebskaya and which one was Konstantin Klemenko. Is that his name? So I don't want to replay that era. So what I like to do is there's two or three voices who I really trust above all else. And one is Ken White. He's a First Amendment litigator and criminal defense attorney at Brown, White, and Osborne. And he was a federal prosecutor who's been in private practice since 2001. He does white-collar criminal defense. He was once on this great podcast called All the President's Lawyers. That podcast has since dissolved, but Ken White hasn't. Hello, Ken. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. It's good to be here. Are you really interested in the January 6th commission and the Georgia uh, attorney general prosecution and then the New York Manhattan DA prosecution? Are these things that you eagerly eat up or are you kind of resigned to having to pay attention to them at this point? Uh, I have a somewhat more reserved level of interest. It is not a level like a a 12-year-old watching the Pokemon evolve. It's it's more the resigned interest of someone familiar with the process, but not, as you said, wish-casting about it. Yeah, and at this point, I don't know if in this interview we're going to catch them all, but let's talk about most of these prosecutions. <laughs> so first of all, close to my home, the DA of Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, was apparently looking into Trump nefariousness, then dropped the case quite Notably, his chief prosecutors, who were 
very experienced guys who are brought on to do this case, disagreed with him in public about the prosecution. You know, my take was there's every incentive for Alvin Bragg, the DA, to go forward if he thinks he had a strong case. The fact that he didn't just flat out tells me the guy's not a coward. He just assess that he might or would probably lose. What do I know? That's why I'm asking you. What do you think? I don't think we can always infer from the decision as much as as people suggest. First of all, if you prosecute Donald Trump, whether you're the U.S. attorney of a federal district or a district attorney someplace, that's your life for the next two years, okay? And that's your office's life. It's going to be all-consuming. And a lot of DAs these days, particularly DAs like this one, have an agenda of they've gotten elected on some sort of platform. It's often sort of a platform of uh, progressive policy changes, of trying to change the the uh, carceral state type approach to let's jail everyone for as long as possible that, that, you know, I criticize a lot and you really can't do policy things and make policy changes. If you are completely consumed with the Trump prosecution story of the day. And, you know, we see this with presidents where their agenda gets completely derailed by some scandal or some issue or something like that, just as much for DAs. And so I, I think someone like this who is elected, who has an agenda and priorities is thinking this is going to have to be worth it uh, because you don't want to shoot at the king and miss. Uh, DAs historically are more willing to do that than federal prosecutors. But still, you don't want to do that, get egg on your face. And uh, if it's not a great case, you don't want to make it the office's one case, the only one anyone talks about. Is there a rule of thumb, a percentage? It's impossible to put an actual percentage. But if you think you have a 50-50 shot and it's an important issue, even with all the considerations that you laid out, will a DA bring the case or do they want 70-30? Or with something like prosecuting Trump, are they willing to take, I don't know, something like we got a third of a chance to make this stick? I don't know if I could put a number on it. I would only say whatever the number is, it's substantially lower than the number for the U.S. Attorney's Office. So... Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office likes airtight cases, and uh, they have a very good win record in general, and, uh, with some recent notable exceptions we could talk about. And um, they can they have the leisure to do things forever with infinite resources. DAs, so many of their cases are reactive. Uh, they have to do them fast in response to some breaking crime, often violent or drug crime. Um, they have more limited resources. They got to roll with it. So they get used to just rolling into the courtroom and throwing on the case. And they get more used to losing frankly, particularly in in big cities. So uh, whatever the number is, it's below 50%. uh, And they're willing to take more risks uh, than uh, feds. Okay. So given both of those sets of consideration that they're willing to take more of a big swing without the assurance of uh, an outcome, but also that I looked up the budget. I think it's like 169 million, which sounds like a not a lot, but it's not really given the load of cases that they have. Add them all together. Can we infer that Alvin Bragg thought this was at best a coin flip? I think you're trying to draw too specific an inference. I think we can infer that um, he doesn't think it's a great case against Trump individually. Uh, that it's likely to 
consume more resources and attention than it's worth, given the low chances. And, um, you know, he, he might even think that they don't have a case at all. I mean, the whole discussion in public about whether or not there's a particular case about Trump is generally completely detached from what the law is and what the prosecutors would have to prove, okay? It's all about feelings. Of course Trump is guilty. I don't care what they accuse him of. Of course he's guilty. But the thing is, white-collar crimes like lying to banks and things like that uh, are generally drafted to make it harder to convict somebody. Uh, you know, generally, the more you're likely defended as a white guy in a blue suit, the more likely it is you're going to have to prove an elaborate mental state to convict them. Uh, yeah. Or an orange guy. Probably. Yeah, very much. So uh, the types of things they're contemplating prosecuting Trump or other high up individuals for are tough to prove, um, particularly if they require, you know, intelligence and understanding and Trump would have a plausible defense you know, he doesn't think about stuff the way normal people do. He just sort of careens from one thing to another like a, like a uh, pinball. Um, and he listens to advice. And so proving that he has a particular elaborate intent and mental state can be challenging uh, when you have a pool of jurors kind of prepared to see him as kind of an idiot and a reactive person. Now, you also got a pool of jurors, many of whom hate him. But he's so divisive that you know there's a very high risk you're going to have some people who just want to hang a jury for his benefit and some people who would convict him of anything uh, if they got the chance. And you know that he's going to make it into a circus, that that's his thing, and he's going to make you uh, a demon to, uh, you know, uh, let's say conservatively 50 million people. And, uh, you know, that has costs. So – does it really help anything to take a shot at him, spend millions of dollars, all your office's time and attention and miss? Does that really help advance the rule of law? Yeah. And let's also remind everyone what the charges they were contemplating were and how that plays into their decisions, which were what? Obviously, we don't have exact information, uh, but the general thought was that they would be prosecuting for reporting different numbers at different times. So, you know, reporting the value of something uh, in a way that helps you when it's for tax purposes and a different way that helps you when it's for securing a loan. So a building goes from worth $100 million to $10 million. Uh, a project goes from being underwater to being um, to being uh, very profitable. The problem with this and, and why it's not as easy of a prosecution as a lot of fraud type prosecutions, why it's not just like, you know, you made a million dollars and you didn't report it to the IRS is that all the time we use different values for things in different contexts. And everyone kind of understands on some level that calculating value has a big subjective fa factor and you know Every, everyone in a potential jury would have engaged in that to some right. degree or another most of the juries probably heard the stories about how like you know return of the jedi on paper didn't make a profit or something like that and the ridiculous ways that accountants and businesses uh come up with uh, how things are profitable or not or how things are valued so it, Trump would have a ton of experts who would be able to say, yes, this is a legitimate way to think about it. It's legit. You know, there are different definitions or different questions being answered. So it's, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. 
And now there is a, oh, and I'll also add to that, you know, I know it's state versus and who's the victim, but they might have a hard time uh, pointing to a victimized institution. You know, I don't know that Deutsche Bank was going to get up there and say, he lied to us about the amount of his assets. And without that, it would seem like the prosecution has even a higher hurdle. Well, sure. I mean, you've got the state tax authorities for a victim. To the extent you're going after anything done to banks, I suspect all the banks are going to be saying, look, man, leave me out of this. I don't want any part of this. I don't want this guy, you know, yelling to his 50 million uh, screaming fanatics that Deutsche Bank is evil and, and you know, have people throwing pig's blood on our uh, branches uh, all across the uh, United States. Yeah, with every uh, open every account, you get a vial of pig's blood. Exactly. You have a lot extra. So what about the civil prosecution that the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, is looking into? Um, is that Would that have a lot of teeth, even if she brings it and gets a, do we use the word conviction in that case? We don't. It's no. a civil proceeding uh, under, the gov- under the Attorney General's civil and kind of regulatory authority. And so in a way, it's much easier for, for the government to win, uh, sometimes kind of appallingly comically easy. Uh, on the other hand, the penalties are, are much different. They're generally levied against organizations rather than individuals. You can do things that are what are sometimes called, you know, corporate death sentences, you know, shut down a charity or a corporation or something. But really to someone who has a wide array of entities at his disposal, uh, and lots of ways to evade uh, debt. Uh, it, it's, you know, he's got lim- Trump has limited skin in the game on that one. Yeah, I would think even if she gets uh, her decision, they already shut down the Trump Foundation charity. I don't think it would have that big an impact, even if she showed that he inflated assets here and depreciated them or depressed them there. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, with those types of penalties, you're really getting to diminishing returns. Um, everyone who thinks, everyone who's going to think Trump is a crook already thinks Trump is a crook. Everyone who doesn't think he's a crook will never think he's a crook. And there's very little persuadable middle to go after for purposes of using the attorney general's power uh, to deter or persuade or demonstrate. And the fine, I take it, wouldn't be crippling to his organization. Well, I mean, who knows how much his organization has? Who knows how much he has? But he's never had a problem in the past with getting rid of debt and uh, moving stuff around and things like that and still somehow surviving. So let's go to the other big state, potential state prosecution, the uh, city prosecution, local prosecution. It's the DA of Atlanta, Fannie Willis, and she's at least looking into bringing charges based on statements that he made to Georgia officials about, see if you could find me this many votes to overturn the election. Uh, What would that, a potential prosecution hinge on? Well, that again, the core of it is intent. All right. Uh, whenever you've got sort of obstruction crimes like that, uh, the intent is often some of the most difficult of any crimes uh, to prosecute and prove. Generally, for this sector of crimes, you have to prove something like a so-called corrupt intent, um, showing that the person is doing it for a, a specific bad end. Uh, it's not enough just that they're a hothead. Uh, venting, uh, and it's not enough if their subjective belief that they actually won 
is wrong or unreasonable even. Uh, there has to be generally a, a corrupt intent of some sort. And that can be hard to prove. Uh, you know, we've been joking for five years now how difficult it is to prove the mental state of any member of the Trump family. And I remember telling everyone who was confident that uh, Junior was going to get indicted that, uh, you know, I don't think federal prosecutors going to find it that easy to prove uh, Junior has specific intent to do anything. Uh, I'm not sure he's capable of specific intent. Same with Trump. He's, he's so, he has a, such ingrained persona, so widely known as that's just the way he is, both by supporters and detractors. Uh, it can be very tough to prove that he specifically intended to do something. And I think once again, you, you, you kind of break down to, um, you know, people who hate him are going to think he's guilty and people who love him are going to think he's not, no matter what. Yes, but putting that aside, as I think about mens rea, right, which is the Latin phrase for what's going on in your head, you have to have knowledge of wrongdoing. Now, I would just ask even the biggest Donald Trump haters, do you really think he actually knows he's doing wrong? Because the most common analysis of the guy is is that he's such a deeply immoral and amoral figure that he convinces himself that his own reality is in fact reality and just does not care, is an inveterate bullshitter, whereas he doesn't think he's lying or even consider if he's lying. He just bullshits. So this seems to be terrible in terms of personality traits, but tell me if I'm wrong. That'll pretty much get you off a charge that depends on proving mens rea. Well, I mean, Mike, I, I think it's a good defense, honestly. And people are appalled by that. And they say, well, then the law sucks if that's the law. And I say, sure, maybe it does. Maybe there should be a different mental state proving. Maybe it should be that, you know, if you did it for a reason that was sincere but unreasonable. But that's not the law. Uh, you know, just to give you an example of another place where this pops up, in tax law, uh, if you have a sincere but completely unreasonable belief that you don't owe taxes because you're one of these tax lunatics who who thinks that, you know, the United States was dissolved in 18-something and, you know, we're all owned by the Queen of England or something. Well, you know, one of these wild-ass theories. If you sincerely believe it and you sincerely believe, therefore, um, you didn't owe taxes, you can't be guilty of the crime of tax evasion. And I prosecuted cases like that where the person had some lunatic theory and the judge is like, well, sorry, you know, I believe he believes it. It's stupid, but he believes it. So there are a lot of white collar crimes that have these types of things, sometimes where you have to know you're violating the law, sometimes where you have to know you're doing something wrong or have a corrupt intent. And with crazy people, those are tough to prove. And Ken White. We'll be back tomorrow for more discussions of the January 6th commission. And I also ask Ken for his prediction, and he gives it, on the possibility of a Justice Department indictment. So what's left for today is, I suppose, beyond my Ken. But tomorrow, it'll all be right here on The Gist. And now the spiel. 
Yesterday, it was reported that a lawyer for Disney quietly told shareholders in the board that Ron DeSantis' recent move to strip the company of its special status as an independent tax district won't work under the law. You can't change the rules until the debt is paid off, according to Orlando's local NBC affiliate. Local news, good job. The law governing such a move has this language, quote, State of Florida pledges it will not limit or alter the rights of the district until all such bonds together with interest thereon are fully met and discharged. This, to my mind, is the third pretty airtight reason why the DeSantis move will not stand. One reason is that Florida law says you can't strip a district of its status in a special session unless you gave the district that status in a special session. Florida did not. It was originally granted in a regular session. Your eyes, stop, stop the glazing. Come with me as I talk about free speech, because there is a free speech argument. And as long as the courts recognize the free speech rights of corporations, and they do recognize them, punishing Disney for taking a political position, it's constitutionally dubious. Won't even get to that. It does seem if Disney wants to push back on DeSantis, however, Knowing what it knows about this not even being able to stand, it could embarrass the governor greatly. The company could call the governor's bluff. The company could threaten to leave the state or just dare him. All right, take on the debt load. We'll see how your citizens like that. But Disney won't call his bluff because Disney is a rational actor, which is to say it is guided by the idea of pursuing profit over pursuing ideology. They might emotionally want to get in a sparring match. They fiscally cannot do so. And that seems proper. Except when you think of it this way, the demand that Disney should pursue ideology over profits, that's exactly what brought us to this moment to begin with. Disney employees demanded of Bob Chapek, their CEO, that he not stand by, stand amorally by, with his eyes on the bottom line as children were potentially being bullied and teachers who might like to say gay were being made not to say gay. It's just another reason why I'm not that comfortable with the idea of corporations becoming more and more involved in political issues. Now, we normally hear, yeah, well, that's because it's a double-edged sword, right? Okay, maybe one corporation will stand up for rights that you believe in, but a different corporation might define rights differently. I mean, right now, citizens and legislatures are defining such rights as parental rights or men's rights or victims' rights. What if employees of a certain company demand their business oppose this kind of sensitive legislation. I think practically that's not where we're trending. There are a couple conservative companies, Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A. They have Christian owners, presumably a workforce that skews more conservative than the workforce at Netflix or Disney. But you don't see them frequently taking a stance on legislation. And I don't think you're going to get many demands for right-leaning corporations to take stances because... Right-leaning corporations, which just used to mean corporations, define their purpose in the world differently. The capitalism part of things, that pretty much satisfies conservatives. Left-leaning corporate causes, sometimes called woke capital, are much more prevalent because the left believes that silence is violence and the right doesn't. Corporate stances against grave injustice or human rights abuses, they're not new. But what is new is that some persistent problems that we've always dealt with in our society are newly being defined as human rights abuses. And maybe they are, but I would advise activists within corporations against too readily defining a cause as unignorable. 
I think so much of our culture gets pulled into politics. So many aspects of our lives that were once seen as private or at least as cordoned off are now seen as political. It's inevitable that there will be more and more laws that corporations are asked or demanded to act upon. And there is nothing in this trend that seems to be abating except I do think, and this is after I laid out all the reasons why the DeSantis decree, it's not a decree, it was passed by the legislature, laid out all the reasons this will not stand, but I do think it will have an effect. I think that stripping Disney of its tax status, it's not a real threat, but it is a, it is a real headache, or at least somewhat of a headache, certainly a hassle for Disney brass. And I also think the example will serve as a pretty decent argument in the future for other corporations not to get overly involved in contentious political matters. Bob Chapek a couple weeks ago had no good answer when his staff tried to shame him for not acting. Chapek even made an apology. It's unacceptable that I don't act. There's no use case for me not acting on this important issue. The next Bob Chapek will have a use case. It will be Bob Chapek. Look at what happened to Disney. It won't be enough for the most impassioned employees at whatever that company is, but the most impassioned employees don't have to answer to stockholders and the board of directors. An amoral pursuit of profit will, in fact, steer Disney out of this situation. They won't go out with a left to the chin of DeSantis. They just want to make their money. So amorality will guide them in that. And amorality might also steer the next corporation to avoid this road in the first place. I mean, so is that bad? When we say amorality, we don't mean something good, do we? Because amoral is worse than moral. But you know what? It's better than immoral. Look at Twitter. The New York Times writes of Elon Musk taking over that company and using it to pursue something other than profit. Quote, Mr. Musk has said he isn't buying Twitter to make money. That is arguably cause for concern. Public shareholders, like any other owner seeking to maximize profits, have a financial incentive to attract and maintain the broadest number of users. That means management needs to bar extremists in order to avoid offending or driving away many more users. So the same eyes that looked at the Florida bill and judged it immoral probably would look at Elon Musk taking over Twitter and judging him immoral. But in both cases, it was an eschewing of the profit motive, the amorality that led to immorality. Maybe the issue isn't woke capital or unwoke capital. It's just capital being something that it's not, that was never meant to be. Capital should pursue a profit ethically, pay employees fairly, make a product soundly, and don't become another player in every dispute to bounce off the statehouse walls. There are definitely times to take a stand. The NFL boycotted Arizona for not honoring the MLK holiday. Apple's Tim Cook spoke from a perspective of true passionate personal conviction when he criticized Alabama's LGBT policies. But so often when the action is forced, when the CEOs are pressured into it, or when the offending policy isn't an unpopular outlier, things go badly for corporations making a stand. I do not see some of these well-publicized corporate pullouts, like when baseball took its all-star game away from Georgia over voting rights. I don't, I don't see that changing the law or materially improving anyone's actual status. 
that action, the Disney action, they don't do much to improve the general welfare. I don't think they raise the national happiness quotient. They do smuggle the draining, polarizing realm of politics into areas where it was once sequestered from. The effect is wearying for all. And ignoring profit for a cause could be doubly dispiriting if the cause is, say, one plutocrat's definition of free speech. There's a case to be made for amorality. I'd rather see corporations be good corporate citizens and non-civic participants than seeing corporations have the quote-unquote right opinions and taking stands that change nothing except to lower our moods and their fortunes. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the Delaware representative of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The GIST. Oomperu depuru dupuru. And thanks for listening.